This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. It's good, uh, it's good to be here in person. Uh, I've heard a lot about this church, uh, both through, uh, through Ted and our friendship, as well as uh, through some friends that are now a part of uh, Christ Church, who were once a part of, uh, of New City. And so it's good to be here in person, Ted, thanks for having me. Thanks for your generosity. Ted has always been just wonderful to share his wisdom. He always buys lunch, which is great. And, uh, and it's, just, it's just given me a lot, including now this time to be with you guys. Our passage this morning, a uh, well-known one for many of you, uh, often referred to as the parable of the Good Samaritan, really hinges on one, on one key issue. And it's a, it's, it's a challenge and both an incredible hope that Jesus turns selfish, inward-bent people into generous and loving people. That Jesus turns selfish people into loving people. This is, this is an issue that I speak on with some expertise, as after 33 years, I've become more convinced that ever, than ever that I am the most selfish person I know. Uh, just to give you a little background on, on me and my family, I've been married for, for seven years to Haley. We have two boys, uh, Houston, who's four, Hart, who's one. And I remember seven years ago when, uh, when Haley and I got married, uh, a buddy asked me, man, how do you think it's going? You know, you're, you're a few months into marriage. How's it going? And I said to him, it's, it's great, uh, but I just had no clue how selfish I am. Being married brought to the forefront all of this selfishness. 20-something years of living on my own, I had only myself to think about, only my agenda, my way of doing things. And as I look back over that first year of marriage and just some of the seemingly ridiculous things we fought about, I remember us going around and around for hours on how to load a dishwasher properly. (laughs) 
Because the argument wasn't really about the dishwasher. The argument was about my way of doing things and having to, to die to that way. Well, I thought I had learned the lesson of just how selfish I am, and then our, our firstborn son came along. And I remember another friend asking, well, you're a dad now. How do you think it's going? And I said, man, I just had no idea how selfish I am. Right? Haley and I, over that first, first year, we figured things out. I learned the right way to load a dishwasher, and so we moved that behind us. Um, but, you know, Haley, you could reason with, and she didn't mess with my sleep at night all that much. And so that part of my selfishness was left untouched. And then again, about a year ago, we added our second, uh, second son, and a friend asked, how's it going being a father of two? And I said, I had no idea how selfish I am. I, I had no idea that Haley was doing all the work when we had one. And now we have this second one, and I've got to be an actual parent. Um, and, and so I don't know how many more kids we have to have before I get the message that I am, I'm, I'm just selfish. And what is it? It's, it's any time that you're brought into a place where you try to love anyone or anything. It's in a direct conflict with yourself, with your commitment to yourself, with your commitment to your own self-protection, your own self-comfort. To love anything brings you into conflict with yourself. Really, the, the wonder of it isn't that, that in marriage or parenting, I'm confronted with my selfishness. It's, it's realizing that before that, I'd never really tried to love anyone. I'd never, I hadn't been brought to my knees by a friendship going, man, my friendship with this guy just made me realize how selfish I am and what a bad friend I am. Or, as we're going to see in the passage, the story that Jesus tells, this, every person that we walk, through, walk past on the street is an invitation to choose love or self. Every interaction we have, love or self. So let's jump into Luke chapter 10. The story goes that a man uh, came to challenge Jesus, to test him. We're just, uh, in your translation that we read this morning, he's, he's described as a lawyer. This isn't a, a civil lawyer. This isn't the, uh, the guy you'd meet on the back of a phone book. This is a, a religious lawyer. This is a man who saw it as his calling, his duty in life to, uh, to bring discernment into the religious life of Israel. To determine whether or not someone was a good Israelite or a bad, whether a teacher was teaching good doctrine or bad. And so when it comes to, to challenge Jesus, he comes on those grounds. He comes to evaluate him as to whether or not this new teacher, this guy who's gathering quite a following, is legit or not. Is he orthodox or not? I think the, his, his line of reasoning goes like this. He looked at the people that were hanging out with Jesus, prostitutes, tax collectors, notorious sinners, and he thinks to himself, if these people are drawn to Jesus, surely he's lowering the bar, right? If, if this group feels comfortable around him, surely he's lowered the bar of what God requires. He's lowered the bar of what it takes to have a relationship with God. And so he comes to Jesus and asks, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? What does God require of me? And Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Jesus, as he often does, turns it around on the man and puts him on the spot, asks him to answer the question, how do you read God's law? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. The man gives the right answer. This is, this is the answer that Jesus himself gave on more than one occasion when he was asked to sum up what the law of the Old Testament teaches. What does it teach? It teaches love God and love your neighbor. All of the other laws of the Old Testament can be summed up in this. Love God and love your neighbor. If you do those two things and do them wholeheartedly, you won't break any of the other laws. 
You won't commit adultery. You won't commit murder if, if your heart is given in love towards God and towards your neighbor. You know, I've got to say, this is one of the parts of Jesus' teaching that I think most of us think we like the best. Right? As, I, as I just try to plan a church in Jacksonville and talk to people about who Jesus is and what Jesus wants for them and talk to them about what they know of Jesus, it's very, very common to hear people say, you know what, I'm not sure about the whole Jesus being God business, the resurrection seems kind of crazy, but if we just did what Jesus taught, right, if we just kept his ethical teachings, if we just tried to basically love God however you understand him and love our neighbors, that's what Jesus offers to the world. And in our culture, that, that resonates, right? For, for many of you, that's, you're here today and you think very much the same thing. I'm going to pass on all of the, the weird stuff, the miracles and the resurrection, but I'm here to learn how to keep Jesus' teaching and how to be a better person and how to be loving to my neighbor. We hear that and are comforted. But this man heard that and was abjectly terrified. This man heard that command, and when he heard it through first century Jewish ears, he heard something that, that put the fear of God in him, literally. It's much, much easier to get, be given commands, to be given laws, precepts, things we can work on, but to be called to love God with our whole heart and to love our neighbor as ourselves. We're told that the man's first instinct is that he desires to justify himself. He desires to come up with some way to get himself off the hook from what Jesus is requiring of him. Because he understood what we miss. What does it mean to love your neighbor as yourself? What does it really mean uh, to, to refuse to be happy if your neighbor is depressed? What does it mean to refuse to eat well and be full if your neighbor's hungry? It means to, put, to be willing to place your happiness, your contentment, inside the life of your neighbor. To be able to say that I, I refuse to live as though my life is fine if my neighbor is struggling, if my neighbor is hurting. And when this man heard that, he sought to justify himself. Basically, he says, look, okay, I can't do that with everyone, right? It's insane to think that I can bind my heart into the lives of my neighbors in that way. So tell me who. So that's what, that's what he asked next. Who, uh, who is my neighbor? Who do I have to love that way? Surely, surely, Jesus, you only mean my immediate family, Right, I can maybe try to love my, my spouse or my children that way, my parents, my brothers and sisters. Maybe it's just my immediate family. Maybe a little larger than that, maybe it's kind of my clan, my, my group within my village that I'm expected to love in that kind of whole, uh, self-giving way. Jesus, is it just other Israelites? Is it just other people that follow, uh, follow the true God that I have to love this way? Virtually no Israelite would have extended it beyond that. Right? That's kind of the maximum extent that it could be expected to go, just to within the, the ethnic and religious life of Israel. So who is my neighbor? Give me some boundaries. Tell me who I have to love and who it's okay for me to remain indifferent towards. And so Jesus, uh, again, as, as he often does, doesn't answer the man's question. Instead, he tells him a story. Essentially, he says it's the wrong question. Now let me tell you a story. And the story he tells is this. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. This, this going down is quite literal. Jerusalem sat up on a mountain, Jericho down in a valley. They would have to, the journey from Jerusalem to Jericho would be a rocky and steep descent, a notoriously dangerous journey. 
And this man who was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. This is a priest. This is a man who in, uh, perhaps was leaving Jerusalem where the temple life of Israel was, where their religious, sacred life was held, where he did his work as a priest, going back down to Jericho where perhaps he lived. And he sees this man, stripped naked, beaten bloody, half dead. He sees him and he walks by on the other side. This is a religious leader uh, within the nation of Israel. This is, by all accounts, a man who should have known better. A man whose very vocation would have had him distributing alms to the poor from the temple on a regular basis. He understood that, that God cared about the poor, that God cared about the vulnerable. And yet when he sees this man... He walks by on the other side. Now, commentators uh, say different things about why he might have done this. Some say it's because he was still serving in the temple and was concerned that he remained uh, ceremonially clean. So that line of thought is if he stops and takes care of this man who's half dead and then he gets all the way dead, he's touched a corpse and now he's unclean and now he can't go to his job. Others have thought he sees this guy half dead, and so he thinks to himself, well, man, maybe the guys who did this are waiting around the rock, and if I stop, they're just going to do the same thing to me. But regardless of his reasons, it's clear that he chose self-protection over love. He chose to protect himself. He chose to protect what mattered to him, what was important to him, over what he clearly knew would have been God's command to love this, his neighbor, uh, in pain. And so likewise, verse 32, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. So the Levite, um, the Levite was kind of like a junior varsity priest. They were the, if the priest was a major leaguer, this guy's in double A and is never making it out. He's, um, he's not quite in the high priestly family, but he gets to serve and do things around the temple. So he's a, a he's kind of a second rate priest, a priest light. And he comes by the man, sees him, and chooses to do the same exact thing. Chooses to take the long way around, pass by on the other side, for we can assume the same reasons uh, that the priest did. You know, it's interesting, and would have been uh, notable to Jesus' hearers, that the first two people who do nothing are precisely the people who knew better and should have done something. These These are the religious folks of his time. And what we learn, what we can take from this, is that religion is powerless to overcome our selfishness. Religion is powerless to overcome our selfishness. In a way, religion's a form of selfishness, right? If I, if I obey, if I do good things for God, then God will do good things for me. And it's powerless to take a selfish person and make them a loving person. It can only take a selfish person and make them kind of a more attractive and uh, seemingly above repute, uh, above repute uh, selfish person. You know, in the city where I live, in Jacksonville, Florida... Um, Jacksonville is an interesting place. It's kind of like if you took Orlando. If Orlando and Birmingham had a baby, it would be Jacksonville. Um, and uh, it's, in, in some ways, of the, of the major Florida cities, Jacksonville, Orlando, Tampa, Miami, you like how I work Jacksonville in there? I know y'all don't think that way, but we do in Jacksonville. Um, we're just a, a step below. Um, but in Jacksonville, it is probably the most Bible Belt churchy of the Florida cities. There are churches everywhere. In fact, I have, a, I have a, a lot of trouble justifying my existence to my neighbors, right? I'm, I'm, I've come to you to plant a new church. Hey, really? 
really? You look around Jacksonville and that's what you think Jacksonville needs. Um, and yet, uniquely, I think, in some ways among the, the Florida cities, Jacksonville routinely is the highest in, in violent crime. Jacksonville is really two cities in one. It's a racially divided city. It's an economically divided city. It's a city um, that's, it's, it's two cities. It's one city that can afford to send their kids to the best private schools. It's another city that deals with failing schools. It's one city uh, that lives behind uh, gated communities and another city that's perhaps the highest uh, still violent crime city in the, uh, in the state. And so Jacksonville, in some ways, is living proof that religion can't make people loving, right? That all, all of the churches, all of the religion that's existed in Jacksonville hasn't dealt with our racism problem and our violence problem and our education problem. In some ways, it's, it's proof uh, that, that religion by itself doesn't make you loving. It can just make you a, a baptized version of selfish. And so where does Jesus go from there? But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. Now, just, we'll, we'll pause there. A word on the, a Samaritan. The, the Jews and Samaritans didn't get along. They were uh, deep rivals. They, they viewed one another with prejudice and skepticism. This is a group of people who deeply disliked one another. Uh, this, uh, maybe a, a parallel is, is the uh, Protestant and Catholic tensions in Ireland um, or the Jewish and Palestinians today in Palestine. These are people who deeply distrusted one another based on race, based on religion, based on all of the things that kept them apart. It's interesting to get some, uh, some cultural background on this. The, uh, <clears throat> a couple of the Mishnahs, which were uh, early fir- B.C. and early A.D. religious teaching of the rabbis in Israel, a couple of them read this. This, is, this would have been contemporary rabbinical teaching uh, in Jesus' time. If you, meaning a Jew, eat bread from a Samaritan, it's like eating the flesh of swine. So if, you, if a Samaritan offers you bread and you eat it, you may as well have eaten uh, pig flesh, which we know in the, in the Jewish dietary laws is frowned upon. One uh, rabbinic prayer says, Lord, forgive us, but not the Samaritans. Right, that's, a, that's a bold prayer. Um, you know, just Jesus' own followers, James and John, in the chapter before this one, when they find themselves rejected by a Samaritan village, Jesus goes, does his thing in a Samaritan village, the village rejects them. As they're leaving the village, James and John, people who have spent now by this point a couple of years with Jesus, say, Jesus, do you, do you want us to call in fire from heaven on them? Jesus, should we call in an airstrike on these men who've, who've rejected you? Right? These are, these, are, these are apostles. And yet they're so thick-headed and slow to get it uh, that they still think that this Jesus they're following might be interested in giving them power to call in fire from heaven on the Samaritans. You know, even the message of grace, the message of new life that they had gotten from Jesus didn't penetrate these generations-old prejudices that they'd carried in their hearts. Right, it works that way, doesn't it? That, that, that just being a Christian doesn't erase the old tapes that you've had in your culture, maybe the jokes that you grew up with in your family, the prejudices that you grew up around you. That those things don't just turn off all of a sudden. And yet here's 
Jesus' own disciples saying, Jesus, should we call down fire from heaven on them? And yet in Jesus' story, it's the Samaritan who stops, who sees the man in the ditch. And this is what he does. He went to him and he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I'll repay you when I come back. It's roughly the equivalent of, scholars think that this would have, been, would have been enough to put the man up in this inn for two months. Right, so this isn't dropping 50 bucks at a La Quinta and saying, here's two nights and then move on your way. This is an inn, probably someone's home, and gave him enough to take care of him for two months. Two months in, a, in an inn until he healed up, until his wounds were, were, were mended. And even then, if it goes beyond that, I'll, I'll, I'll pay you back when I come by. And now look at the genius of what Jesus does here. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, go and do likewise. Do you remember what the man's question was? Who is my neighbor? Right? Who counts? Who in this world am I, am I obligated to love? And Jesus doesn't answer that question. Instead, he, answers the, he, he deals with the question, which one of them was a neighbor? A neighbor, your neighbor isn't a project to be identified. It's not a person uh, that meets a certain candidacy for your love. The neighbor is a vocation. It's a calling that Jesus gives to us. Not to figure out who is your neighbor, but to enter into your world as a neighbor is one who sees beyond boundaries, the one who sees beyond prejudice, the one who sees beyond uh, limits, and is willing to be a neighbor in their world. The commentator, uh, Klein Snodgrass, brilliant commentator, kind of an odd name, (laughs) says this, he says, Jesus will not allow boundaries to be set so that people may ever feel like they have completed their obligation to God. Love does not have a boundary where we can say that we have loved enough nor does it permit us to choose those we will love, those who are our kind. You see what he says? He says, Jesus will never give the man a boundary that he can live up to and say, check, I can check the loved my neighbor box today. Jesus isn't in the business of giving us boundaries, giving us a checklist so that we can say, did that today, did that today, did that today, I'm good. Instead, he gives us a calling and sends us into our world with a calling to love our neighbor. We're going to do a few application points on this, what it means for us uh, to embrace this calling, this calling to be a neighbor in our world. What does a neighbor do? The first thing that we're going to say is that a neighbor uh, sees opportunities, not boundaries. When When the priest and the Levite saw the man in the ditch, they saw all of the reasons why they could be justified in not stopping to love the man. They pass by the far, the far way around, seeing boundaries. The Samaritan comes and he looks right past this glaring boundary, right? This, this, this deep divide of ethnicity and religion and social status. He looks past all the boundaries and sees only opportunity. And so a neighbor lives in their world with their eyes and their heart open towards those that they might love, towards those that they might sacrifice towards. You know, um, it's so easy in our world to live with our eyes closed, isn't it? To live uh, trying to deliberately avoid seeing the need around us. Uh, 
Interstate 95 runs right through Jacksonville. We use it to get almost everywhere. And, uh, and there's this phenomenon that happens at the, at the foot of those exits where very often there'll be men standing with signs saying, out of work, need food, need money. And you know what I do when I come there? You, you kind of pull off the exit and you start to, you start to kind of do the, the math on where you're going to have to stop. You know, like, okay, there's two cars back. I can, if I stop here, then I'm not going to be in the awkward place where, like, I'm here and the guy's right here with his sign. And then you get there, and, I, and if I'm right there, I kind of fiddle with the radio or I look around like I'm trying to find some change or something. But you, what you don't want to do, right, is just make eye contact. Or I'll say, I won't put you in my same sinful boat. What I want to do is avoid eye contact. I look down. Why? Because then I can at least kind of pretend that I didn't see it, that I didn't see the need, that I wasn't confronted with it. But if I make eye contact, if we're sitting no more than a foot or so away from each other and we make eye contact, then I remember this is a human being. This is someone who there's a, is my neighbor. And so a neighbor lives with eyes open. They don't live with a deliberate blindness, a deliberate tunnel vision that just keeps to themselves in their own life. They live with an open, open eyes and an open heart. They don't look for reasons not to love. You know, all of us have people in our lives that we're pretty sure we don't have to love. I, I don't know who that, that person is for you. Maybe it's people who look differently than you do, people of different races, and you feel a, a, a comfort level with just, well, I, okay, I don't have to love them. Maybe it's people of a different political party, right? Maybe you're, you're fully convinced that if a person has a certain bumper sticker on their car, you're free to cut them off or do worse, um, that certain people, because of their ideology, great, I don't have to love them. Maybe for you, it's people of a different religion, people who don't embrace your faith, people who don't share your same faith commitments. You feel like, well, I've got to love the church, but I, I don't have to love all of them. What Jesus says, a neighbor looks beyond boundaries to opportunity. I remember speaking with a Christian in our city. Uh, I mentioned Jacksonville's gated communities, which is our, uh, the way we do life. And this man had worked a long time and worked into a, a very, very nice community where he basically only had to live with people like him, other, you know, established, retired executives. And that in that community, community came easy, right? Everybody could play golf together. Everybody could go to the club together. It just worked. And then one day, a Muslim family moved into this neighborhood, and they built a house, and onto that house, they built a, a prayer room, you know, facing the direction towards Mecca. They did, they did all of that in this very, very pristine community. And this Christian that I was talking to, a man in his early 70s, was talking about a Bible study that he had, he had had of other Christians in his community, and how one of those Christians told a joke about how they ought to welcome this new neighbor to the, to the, to the neighborhood by bringing a howitzer, a large machine gun, to his front door to scare him away. And this, this guy who grew up in the, in the American South over the course of 70-something years, laughed at that joke, didn't see the blindness within it. And so it was, a, it was difficult, but it was an opportunity to go, well, what do you, what do you think a Christian would do? <laughs> right? what, do you think, what do you think Jesus would do? If a man moved into his neighborhood, moved into his community, who is that different than him? Is that man exempted from his love on behalf of his difference? Right, kind of a a modern American just tolerance of everything, doesn't matter what you believe, is not enough to give real neighbor love. 
right? But Jesus, this, this calling to be a neighbor, to in spite of different, real, valid differences of belief, to extend hospitality, to invite that man and his family who probably, can you imagine how lonely that guy feels? How alone in this, in this, uh, in this community he feels? What would it be like to embrace him, to bring him over to your house for dinner? Uh, to show him that he doesn't have to be alone, that he has a real neighbor. A neighbor doesn't see boundaries, doesn't see, opp- doesn't see reasons to not love, but sees opportunities to love. Also, a neighbor puts love into action. Right? A neighbor doesn't just say, it's okay for me if I feel warm feelings towards my neighbor, but actually realizes that love is something that you have to actually put action behind. You have to actually do something about it. You know, it's never been easier for us uh, in our culture to mistake kind of a general social, like a social consciousness for being a loving person, right? It's easy for me to think, well, you know what I did today? I ordered fair trade coffee and my friend on Facebook posted this thing that Bono said and I reposted it. So you know what? I, I'm a pretty progressive love, you know, I'm a, I'm a responsible citizen of the global community today. I've, I have loved my neighbor, it's easy, isn't it, just to say, well, I, I've got these kind of markers that I've, I've you know, I, I'm, I love people, but to never actually follow through on it, to never actually let it materialize an actual sacrifice, I'm great at that. I'm great at, at seeming to be loving, putting on a loving uh, way about me in the world. My wife is great for me in this because she's, she's actually loving, right? She actually does things for actual human beings. Um, so while I'm, while I'm, you know, reposting things on Facebook, she's busy keeping the the kids of the single mom that lives next door to us so she can go out and have a a moment of sanity from her three kids and do some errands. Um, I remember preaching this sermon, uh, or a sermon like it in a, uh, in another church. And and it's great being the preacher because all you have to do is just kind of say stuff, right? You can get up and say what the Bible says and then you sit down and people just assume that you do it. Um, but I remember this one, this, this one uh, woman in her saying, coming up after me and says, you know what our community group's going to do because of this? We're, we're going to all, uh, instead of meeting together one night to study the Bible, we're so convicted that we do the thing that you say you do where you pretend not to see the homeless guy. That we're going to build bags, right, of uh, grocery gift cards and things like that that we can actually do something when we're confronted with the needs of the homeless around us. Like, man, it's so, such a, uh, a loving response to the message of Jesus. That to, that to be a neighbor requires putting love into action in the actual lives of actual people around us. This man did that. The Samaritan gave up his own safety. He risked it in the same way that the priest and the Levite wouldn't. He gave it immense financial cost to himself. He put love into action. And then finally, uh, as we conclude, uh, a real neighbor is motivated to mercy by mercy. To mercy by mercy. See, here's the thing. It's not enough for Jesus to just call us and challenge us to live a life of being a loving neighbor. Because we've still got a problem. Right? You, you still, I still fundamentally have a heart that's bent in on itself. That's one of the ways that, that uh, Augustine used to describe human sin. That it's the, sin is the human soul bent backwards on itself designed to be given in love towards God and others. And our sin, we just are, we're self-obsessed, self-protective, addicted to our own comfort and pleasure. If you take a selfish person like that and you say, go love your neighbor, you're, you're powerless. I can, I can tell my dog to go drive my car and it's just, it's, 
not going to get anywhere. You can tell a selfish person to go and be loving, but it doesn't change the fundamental nature that we have as selfish people. You, you can be called to be a neighbor, but you can never do it until you recognize your own deep and abiding need for mercy. You know, it's interesting that the lawyer and all of Jesus' original audience would have immediately identified themselves in this story with the man who was on his way from Jerusalem to Jericho and got beaten and left for dead and put in a ditch. Right? If you're telling a story in a first century Jewish world, and there's, there's one dutiful Israelite in this story. There's one Israelite who's doing what he's supposed to be, presumably going from temple worship in Israel back to Jericho. And he's the one that gets waylaid by robbers and thrown in a ditch. You know, we do this anytime we come to a story, we try to find ourselves in it, right? They, they didn't get subjected to the Facebook quizzes about, are you a Miranda, or are you a, you know, which hobbit are you, those kind of things. But as they heard this story of Jesus, they would have been trying to find themselves in the story. And when they tried to find themselves in the story, they would have found themselves in the ditch. They would have found themselves as the, the Israelite who fell victim. And so as they heard this story, they would have expected salvation to come from their priests. Right? Well, they'll, they'll stop for me. No. So they would have been put in the position of being the one who is in need of mercy from the Samaritan, from the one they despised. Right? This, would have been, um, this would have been enough of an insult to the average Israelite if the Samaritan was in the ditch and the Israelite was the hero. It still would have involved uh, him reaching across and kind of humiliating himself across these boundaries. But to be put in the place of the one who had to receive mercy from the despised Samaritan would have been just a, a, a worldview challenging story for them. It would have been a trauma to the way they saw their life and saw the world. It's so much harder to receive mercy for most of us than to give, to admit that we're the ones who are in need. And Jesus invites us to find ourselves in the same place, to find ourselves, to identify in this story with the man who's beaten and helpless and in a ditch. In another place in the Gospels, it tells us as Jesus looked out among the people, he saw them harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. We're like men and women who've fallen into a ditch, only this ditch of our own making, the ditch of our own selfishness and sin, powerless to get out of it, enemies of God. And Jesus, as the true good Samaritan, not only stopped and saw us where we were, sees us where we were, and crossed over a ditch to risk his life, he actually overcame the, the, the biggest chasm in the universe, the chasm between the creator and his creatures, he overcame that to come into our world. He didn't just risk his life, he gave his life. He didn't come to us knowing that it might cost him everything. He came into our life intending for it to cost him everything. Laying down his life for our life. Not only giving the provisions for our healing, but for our forgiveness, that we might be loved by his Father. It's only when you recognize your need of mercy that you'll have any hope of becoming a merciful person in your world. Uh, the way the gospel works in our hearts is that first we recognize that we are the beloved, that we are loved by God, we are uh, recipients of his extreme mercy, and that then those who have received mercy become merciful in return. 
Those who've been loved become the most loving people in return. It's the way the gospel works. It moves us from the ditch into relationship with God and it moves us out into our world as good neighbors, loving neighbors. Neighbors who live uh, in the city of Orlando with your eyes open toward the needs of your neighbor, whether it be the neighbor closest to you, perhaps the, neighbor that you sh- the neighbors that you share a home with, or the neighbors that you think you have no obligation to, those neighbors that you never even meet, those neighbors that you never run across, sends us out into that world with a calling to love our neighbors with open eyes, open hearts, and ready to bring the mercy of Jesus into our world. Let's pray together. Father, we acknowledge um, our own deep need of your mercy and your grace. We acknowledge our brokenness uh, before you. We acknowledge um, our hopelessness before you. Father, we, we need you. We need your son Jesus as our rescuer and our redeemer, our good Samaritan, our good neighbor, who came and crossed over from heaven, from eternal bliss with the Father, into the misery of our lives and our condition to lift us up and to restore us, to bandage our wounds, to restore our broken bodies and hearts, to set us right again. Jesus, we pray that every day you would help us to live our lives as those who have been shown great mercy, that you would fill our hearts with awe at what we've received, that you would fill our hearts with gratitude, And having been neighbored well by Jesus, we would move out into our world as neighbors. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.